I, w- I was going to try to remember what Eric said in the welcome about uh, something uh, we worship today because um, Jesus had to say it, remember? <laughs> Maybe not. We, we worship today because the Lord came to earth. But And that's really, that was my, kind of my first line this morning here, really. Because um, um, worship is central to the whole Christmas story. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, you know, it's interesting. Um, oh, that's what he said. We, we worship today because um, the Lord came to earth, something like that. And, um, and that's, that's the theme of today's message is that worship is central to the whole Christmas story. And we're going to see that, like, um, when you read the account of the Christmas story in Matthew or you read it in Luke, one of the things you'll find is that whenever people came in contact with the message of Jesus, coming to earth, their response was worship. And that's our response this morning. Praise the Lord. Um, great to hear all of you all singing this morning. You know, you have Zechariah the priest who worships in prophecy um, in Luke 1. You've got Elizabeth, and when she hears Mary, um, John the Baptist leaped in her womb, and she was filled with joy, and she worships. Um, Mary worships as she thinks of God's goodness to her in letting her be the mother of the Messiah. The angels are worshiping as they are declaring the glory of God to the shepherds. And then the shepherds are worshiping by glorifying and praising God. And I need a little thing here so I can read better. Sorry. Um, So, and then the baby is born. And what happens as Joseph and Mary go up to the temple in Jerusalem to present Jesus according to the law, um, says in Luke, and as they are there, they run into Simeon, an old man. He sees the Christ child, and he begins to worship. And then Anna, an 84-year-old woman, she begins to worship. And then, obviously, at the end here, the Magi encountered Jesus. They fell down, and they worshiped him. <clears throat> so what we are seeing is that all of these people that are coming in contact with the story of Christmas namely the birth of Jesus Christ, they, their response is worship. Um, so what I want to do in the next few moments is just look at the Christmas story account in Matthew chapter 2, and I want us to see five truths about worship that we can take away from this story. <clears throat> um, and I wanted to go right into these, but I was looking at um, reading the account in Matthew 2, reading the account in Luke, and I was like, oh, okay, wait a minute. Now I've got this dilemma. Some, somehow when I'm preparing messages, if I find anything that looks like, oh, gosh, uh, this doesn't quite line up. Now I've got to figure out how to explain this. I just can't let it go, you know, because I, I don't want people to go home and go, wait a minute. He said that. And then um, I just read this in this other passage, and it said something different. So I'm going to try to explain this, okay? So before I get into these um, five truths about worship that we can take away from the Christmas story. Um, I feel like I need to address one thing first, because like I said, I, I noticed this when I was um, studying these passages. Um, how many of you have always believed that the Magi had their encounter with Jesus in Bethlehem? I did. I mean, you don't have to raise your hand, I guess. I guess no one did. Okay, well, maybe. Have you ever thought that they may have visited him in a home in Nazareth? Um, well, I'm just going to state some scriptures so these are like facts that we, we know because they're just straight out of the scriptures. Okay, one, Mary and Joseph were living in Nazareth 
where Gabriel showed up and announced to Mary that Jesus was to be born through her. That's Luke one twenty six. They traveled up from Nazareth to Bethlehem. I guess it'd be more down because now there's north of Bethlehem. For the census, which is approximately 80 miles south, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We know that. Number three, after the family was ceremonially clean, um, because um, they're a Jewish family, and after a woman has birth, um, it takes about 40 days before she's ceremonially clean. That's about 40 days. <clears throat> they traveled to Jerusalem, which is like about five miles north of Bethlehem, to present the offering for their firstborn male. It talks about that in Luke 2. Um, that's where they met Simeon and Anna. Um, and then it says <clears throat> in Luke 2.39 specifically, leaving Jerusalem, they returned to Nazareth. Okay. Um, we know another thing. The Magi showed up in Jerusalem and asked Herod about the king of the Jews. In Matthew 2.2, Herod asked chief priests where the king would be born, and they told him Bethlehem. Herod told the Magi to go there and investigate. Number six, the Magi continued to follow the star. Okay. Number seven, Herod found out the Magi didn't listen to him and he wanted to kill the child king. So he issued an order to kill all children two and younger um, in Bethlehem and the surrounding region. Um, it's assumed that he chose two years to coordinate with the Magi's information, um, which they shared with him of exactly when the star appeared to them. Um, then number eight, the angel warned Joseph in a dream and told them to flee to Egypt, which they did. And then number nine, it says in Matthew 2, they returned to Nazareth after Herod died. <clears throat> so is Matthew and Luke's account contradictory? Um, I don't believe so. And, um, you know, as you read the Gospels, um, the authors, um, there, there's, there's, time, there's time spans between even sentences. There's time spans between paragraphs that different authors, depending on the audience they were writing to, um, did not tell every detail of every um, thing that went on in Jesus's life. If they did, then they'd have never gotten the Gospels written. I mean, the book would be, you know, from floor to ceiling here. So, <clears throat> um, um, so we know that they, they wrote to different authors. Matthew's audience was more to a Jewish audience. Luke's was more to a Gentile audience. Um, so, it, so there's two things here, and none of these really have any impact on the message this morning, but I just wanted to get them out because, like I said, I couldn't let it go. Um, it's possible that after Jesus was born, that Joseph and Mary after coming and, and having the, the um, offering of the firstborn, that they, that they went back to Bethlehem and found a house there to live in, okay? And the Magi did indeed go there. And shortly thereafter, Joseph got the dream to go to Egypt, went to Egypt, came back, and then went to Nazareth. If this were the case, then Luke saying, quote, after they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. That would not be a false statement. It's just that, Luke might have left out, you know, all the details in between of going back to Bethlehem, then going to Egypt, and then coming back and going to Nazareth. But in the end, he said that they ended up in Nazareth, or they did go back to Nazareth, which is true. But then again, it's also possible that after the purification and presenting Jesus to the Lord in Jerusalem, that they did indeed head straight back to Nazareth, which was Joseph's hometown and Mary's hometown. And 
and it's possible that maybe the star led the Magi to Nazareth. Um, it never actually says that they actually went to Bethlehem. It just says that Herod sent them to Bethlehem to find the child, but it never says, and so therefore they went to Bethlehem. It just says right after that, it says that they continued to follow the star. It doesn't say that they <clears throat> actually went there. So um, I just wanted to point that out so that if you're like, wait a minute, Luke says they went back to Nazareth, and Matthew says, you know, so that's, um, but the, the point of this is really the takeaways from any of those are pretty easy. Jesus the Savior was born, okay? Jesus' birth fulfilled prophecy. They both talk about that. And Jesus' birth was a miracle. Um, but this morning, as I said, I want to focus on these five truths about worship that we can take away from the Christmas story as told by Matthew. So <clears throat> I'm going to read some verses um, here out of Matthew um, chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and I'm starting in, in verse 1, so I'll just pretty much be in chapter 2, verse 1, through about <clears throat> 16 today, okay? Um, so verses 1 and 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So number one, if you're taking notes, worship involves personal sacrifice. Worship involves personal sacrifice. It says the Magi came from the east. Um, now, <clears throat> again, we try to like not read into the scriptures if the scripture doesn't say something, but um, I'm just going to put this out there that many historians believe that they actually came from the Parthian Empire, which, which would, would have been Persia, okay, and traveled, you know, approximately 800 miles to Jerusalem. May or may not be true, but I'm going to tell you something that's interesting that I thought that would be pretty cool if it, if it was true. Um, but that's about from Kansas City to Atlanta, just to give you some perspective. You were walking that journey or, or riding on some camels or something. Um, that would not be an easy journey in their day, would it? Um, the Bible does not explicitly say where the wise men came from other than just from the east. Um, but some Bible scholars have pointed out that in the book of Daniel, that Daniel was put in charge of the wise men of Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. Um, that's what they were called. They were called wise men or, or magi or magistani was the name of this group of um, people, this uh, group of leaders at that day that were kind of advisors to the king. Daniel 2.48 says, Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men, that is magi, if you will, of Babylon. So I don't know if this is how it happened, but suppose Daniel's influence over the magi of Babylon at the time played itself all the way out to Magi from that nation coming to worship the Messiah. Suppose the Magi of Babylon were taught the meaning of Daniel's prophecies, um, and from them, the Magi, during Jesus' birth, pieced together timelines and were actually anticipating um, during their lifetime that something big was going to happen in Judea, and they were actually looking for it. Um, 
that that would be that would not surprise me if if that if if that's what God did, um, and that's how these magi knew um, that something big was happening in Judea at that time frame. But none of that is explicitly stated in scriptures. Um, so I'll just talk about what we do what we do know. What we do know for a fact is that these magi are intent on worshiping this newborn king, worshiping the king of the Jews, as in, in, in the words of scripture, or their words, actually. What makes worship powerful and what makes worship significant, what catches heaven's notice is when we understand that worship isn't based on our comfort zone. It's not on what we're comfortable with. It's, it's not based on convenience, on what's easy for us. It's, it's not based on what other people think. You know, the Magi could have had a lot of friends and family saying, are you crazy? Why are you going there? That doesn't even make sense that you're going to take a trip many miles away. And who cares about a king of the Jews? You guys aren't Jewish. Um, so why do you even care? Why don't you stay here with your family? And this is where you belong. But no, when you are a person of worship, a person who cares about worship, you understand that there's a sacrifice personally to worship, which is a part of the offering that we're giving to God. Um, you know, you, you came here today, and it was a sacrifice. I'm sure many of you are tired from activities from yesterday or have had a very hard week. For some of you, it's not easy to get here even. Um, sorry, I don't, okay. <laughs> um, you maybe didn't feel like it. Um, you maybe don't feel like it on a lot of Sunday mornings. You maybe didn't want to come here, but you're here. And that's all part of worship. Saying it's not about me, it's about the one that I'm worshiping. So I'm grateful that you all are here. And God is too. <clears throat> so it goes on to say, um, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. You know, you can imagine that Herod is like, what? I'm the king of the Jews. And now they're saying, no, there's been one born who is the king of the Jews. And Herod knows that they know what they're talking about. Um, that's why he went to great lengths to, to find this king and snuff him out. They understood these wise men, that the right response to the good news of a Messiah, of a Savior born, of a King born, was to worship. And no matter what it cost them, no matter where it took them, no matter what it required of them, they were willing to worship the King because he's worthy of that kind of worship. So again, number one is worship involves personal sacrifice. Well, number two um, worship opens our eyes to spiritual realities. Worship opens our eyes to spiritual realities. In, um, starting in verse 3, I'm going to read <clears throat> pretty far down here through verse 11. It says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And that word in the Greek is kind of like he was agitated. Um, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people... He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you Bethlehem in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. 
For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. I'm sure you guys have heard this before. It says, and going into the house, they, they were no longer in a manger in the stable, even though all of our nativity scenes kind of depict that, that scene there. Um, so Herod inquires of the religious brain trust of the day as to where this Christ was to be born. And it's very interesting. They didn't, they didn't say, hey, you know what, could you give us a few days to get back to you because we need to study this out. No, they, they knew the answer right away. So the chief priests and the teachers of the law say, well, if he's born, then he's born in Bethlehem, just six miles south of here. Um, so what's happening here is that here's this religious brain trust and all of these people who should know that something significant is happening, you've got this contingent coming from very far away to, that says they want to worship this king of the Jews, okay? Um, uh, but they don't even make the journey with the Magi. Um, in fact, it appears that they never saw the star, which you would have thought would have been a fairly significant happening. Was the star there? Absolutely. Was a star bright enough to where it could lead a group of magi from 800 miles away? Yes. Why is it that the religious of the day couldn't see it? And the answer is found that when you and I are worshiping, we're going to see things that no one else sees. When you and I are in the presence of the Lord, we're going to sense, we're going to understand, we're going to perceive, we're going to be aware of things that other people aren't. There's something about being in the presence of the Lord that sensitizes our hearts and minds and when we are worshiping God, even through coming here on Sundays or Tuesdays or um, Sunday nights, um, being involved in fellowship, life groups, um, uh, personal time in the Word with the Lord and His Word, personal time in prayer with the Lord, quite frankly, it opens your eyes to spiritual realities and to see things that others miss. Um, there's such a huge value of being in the presence of the Lord, taking time and making time to worship Him. That's why it's so valuable to start your day by worshiping Him. When you lay down at night worshiping Him, when you have extra time to worship Him, because when we're in His presence, it opens our eyes, it opens our hearts, it opens our spirits, it strengthens us to know His ways, to see what He is doing around us in any given moment. And I trust that you all have experienced that. And even when you come here, like on a Sunday morning, you know, maybe things, you're, you know, you're hurrying to get things together and things are going crazy at home, but, but you get here and you're in his presence. And, and yet, um, somehow, God's still small voice speaks to you in some way um, because your eyes are open to spiritual reality because you're in his presence and you're worshiping him. Worship sees what no one else sees. <clears throat> <clears throat> Number three, worship results in great joy. <clears throat> worship results in great joy. Um, I love this. 
But um, here in verse 10, it says um, about the Magi, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They are just so thrilled. You see, when you and I are in the presence of the Lord, it brings us joy. Um, we shared this during the Philippian series. And, and honestly, that's, that was really what my takeaway was from the Philippian series. I love how when we go through a book of the Bible, there's always seems to be a theme that just kind of catches, you know, um, God repeating over and over again, this is what I want you to get out of this. And that's what I got out of Philippians personally is like, how can I not be joyful? How can I not be joyful? You know, look at what Paul was going He wrote this letter from prison. And, um, and at that time, the one um, message I was sharing, Psalm 1611, I shared this verse, says, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. Um, so you can imagine that the closer and closer that the Magi got to Jesus, the more and more joyful they became. <clears throat> Number four, worship involves giving to God. Worship involves giving to God. So there are gifts that they gave. Verse 11, Matthew 2 says, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. There's a prophetic nature to these gifts and an appropriate nature to these gifts. Gold is a gift that is fitting for a king. Um, so gold speaks of his majesty. Um, frankincense is incense used in worship, and that speaks of him as the great high priest and of his deity. So you could say gold speaks of his majesty, frankincense, frankincense speaks of his deity, and myrrh was an anointing oil used in preparation for death. So the myrrh has a prophetic nature to it as it speaks to his death. But the key is that they are giving something, and worship always does that. It gives, whether it's time, energy, resources, mind space, intentional pondering on the Lord. Um, do you realize that when you and I sing, and you may not feel like you have the best voice, but God's not listening to your voice or your notes. He's listening to the heart. That's why it's really important to sing. Don't ever talk yourself out of singing to the Lord because the Lord wants to hear your voice and it's part of your gift to Him. It's part of what you're lifting up to Him. <clears throat> and, um, you know, it's it just, you could come here and just sit and zone out and that wouldn't be worship because you're not giving. You're not, you're not engaging. Um, worship is always... It, 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 there's always some giving. There's always um, an intentionality to it. Giving praise, giving thanks. So part of what we're offering, part of the gift, is simply ourselves. So it's all of you. It's all of me. Um, all that we are, giving all that we are to Him. If worship costs us nothing, then worship is diminished. It's why we give back to God even from, from our increase. Um, financially, it's part of our worship. But we're giving more than just our resources. God wants our hearts. God wants our lives. We're laying ourselves down to Him. We're presenting ourselves as, it says in Romans 12, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And when we do that, God is pleased. When we do that, it makes all the difference. And that's the last thing I want us to notice, is that worship changes you. Okay, number five, worship 
changes you. <clears throat> There's a little nuance in Matthew's story that unless you're Jewish, it would be hard to see. Um, <clears throat> of course, Matthew is Jewish, and he's writing to a Jewish audience. And so, I, I mean, my best guess is this is why he, he might have included this in the story. In other words, it's like a, a little breadcrumb almost um, for his audience to, to try to get. Um, and they would understand this line of the story, Matthew 2, verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they, the Magi, departed to their own country by another way. So on the surface, it appears they don't want Herod to know how to retrace their steps, so it would be easy for him to find a baby. But I believe, again, that what Matthew may have been doing here is dropping a little um, clue for his audience as to the protocol of how the Jewish people went to the temple to worship the Lord. Um, Ezekiel 46.9 says this, When the people of the land come before the Lord at the appointed feasts, he who enters by the north gate to worship shall go out by the south gate. And he who enters by the south gate shall go out by the north gate. No one shall return by way of the gate by which he entered, but each shall go out straight ahead. The significance of this is to signify that you are leaving worship as a different person than when you came. You've been in the presence of the Lord, and so having been in the presence of the Lord, it's changed you. It's made you different. Now, we, of course, today have the temple of the Lord living within us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And the spiritual reality for us is that when we worship God, when we meet with God, we should leave the encounter differently from how we came. Perhaps it's a burden relieved, comfort received, um, anxiety quenched, peace needed, strength bestowed, direction given, and so forth. Um, when you're in the presence of the Lord, it makes you different. Worship changes us. It changes how we think. It changes what we see. It changes what we value. So I think there's significance in that line, they left by another way. And I trust that you have worshiped the Lord today, and you will go out of this place changed. But we have even another opportunity this morning to worship the Lord by celebrating the Lord's table. So <clears throat> I'm going to ask the deacons to come forward. <clears throat> and um, in a few minutes, uh, we'll hand out the bread and the cup. Um, <clears throat> but um, I'm so grateful uh, that the Lord Jesus initiated with his disciples what we are about to do in the next few minutes and so passed down for us to do. Um, anyone who is here this morning that is a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ is welcome to participate. Um, I just want to take a minute to point out three things that we can think about this morning as we worship the Lord and partaking of the bread and the cup this morning. And in a minute, the bread and cup will be passed out while the piano is, is playing um, in the background. And I urge you to take the time to reflect on these three things uh, during that time. Number one, Rejoice in the fact that when we die, it's not over. But we will live again with the Lord. Implicit in the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, um, 26, uh, I mean, sorry, 11, 26, is the resurrection. 
It says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But he was killed on a cross. Well, no, he wasn't. Because he rose again. So he's coming back again. The words until he comes are not an afterthought by Paul. They assume and are built on the fact that Jesus is alive. That Jesus rose from the dead. So that's number one. Rejoice in the fact that when we die, it's not over. But we will live again with the Lord. Number two, rejoice in remembering Jesus. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Remember times of fellowship with him. Okay. Um, remember his being betrayed willingly. Remember his body being broken and his blood poured out. Remember his being the substitute for your sins, his carrying your burdens, and so many other things. Sweet times of fellowship with him. Um, remember all these things. Just remember Jesus. Um, number three, rejoice in Christ, satisfying the hunger and thirst of your soul. In John 6, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Be nourished on all the blessings that he bought for you with his body and blood. Be nourished this morning um, as we take the bread and the cup. 